Father, we are gathered here today to worship you. You are the only God, the almighty God, and you alone are worthy of our praise. For if we ceased, even the rocks would cry out. All of creation bears testimony to you as a divine creator. Please forgive us. We are sinners in need of your forgiveness every day. We ask that you would go before us today, that the full measure of your Holy Spirit move today in the hearts and minds of your children, and that we would know you more and desire you alone. I also pray that your Holy Spirit move in the hearts of those that do not have a living, personal relationship with you, that the scales be removed and today be the day of their salvation. We lift these prayers to you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Let's go ahead and begin with uh, our verses today in Psalm 33, and I'll give you a moment to turn there. So please turn there and join me, and we're going to start in verse 1. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the water of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Amen. This is a hymn of praise to the God who made all things, who rules all things for his own purposes, and who has chosen a people of his own for the sake of the whole world. This psalm has no title in the Hebrew, but was intended as a hymn of praise to celebrate the power, the wisdom, and the mercy of God. This psalm is broken down as follows. We have verse 1 through 3, are a call to sing praise for specific reasons. Reason number 1 is the fact that God's word is upright, verse 4 through 9. Reason 2 is the fact that God's will prevails, verse 10 through 12. And reason number three is the fact that God's gaze discerns all, verse 13 through 19, and therefore we hope in God, verse 20 through 22. What I want us to focus on this morning is the truth of God and how it is in direct contrast to the lies of this world. Everything held as exalted in this psalm has been in the past and remains under attack today. 
Shout for the joy in the Lord, O you righteous, is how this psalm begins. Praise befits the upright, or in other words, is suitable to the upright, the people of God. As Woody mentioned last week, there is no other possible response from man when he is reconciled with his creator. It is a miracle that we are not done away with in the hands of the Almighty God. The fact that any good thing happens is a continual testimony to the love, to the mercy, and the grace of the Lord. The response is consistent throughout all of Scripture. We have recorded in history praise for God's goodness to Israel, praise for God's goodness to righteous men, praise for God's attributes, praise for God's answered prayer, praise for God's deliverance of his people, praise for God's action in parting the Red Sea, praise for God's salvation, and the list goes on and on and on. It is unmeasurable, but in all cases demands the same response from the believer, humble fear and adoration as in second chronicles 7 as soon as solomon finished his prayer fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and sacrifices and the glory of the lord filled the temple and the priest could not enter the house of the lord because the glory of the lord filled the lord's house when all the people of israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the lord on the temple they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This praise is befitting for the upright. Giving thanks to the Lord with a lyre, making melody with ten strings, playing skillfully with loud shouts suggests that our all is to be used in glorifying God. In fact, one of the greatest things we could take away from this and all of the Psalms is that glory is to be brought to God in the entire life of the believer. It is not an event confined to Sunday alone. Our all, scripturally, in the form of heart, soul, mind, body, and strength, belong to the Lord. In contrast, the world would have anything but God receive his glory. Placing something in the, in the position to receive the glory of God is at the heart of man's sinful desire to put himself above God. This makes the saving work of Jesus all the more amazing. By the work of Jesus alone, in whom is the only way to salvation, we are called children of God. This is unfathomable apart from the love of God. In Romans 8.14 we read this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if we are children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. So now we continue to read in our psalm, For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness, and some translations here will read truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. The truth is under vehement attack today. Truth, as defined by Noah Webster in 1828, is as follows. Conformity to fact or reality, exact accordance with that which is or has been or shall be. The truth of history constitutes its whole value. True state of facts or things, purity from falsehood. Now let's look at the Random House Dictionary of the English Language Second Edition Abridged, and we find this definition of truth. It starts out okay, the true or actual state of a matter. But before you move one sentence down, it says this, 
ideal or fundamental reality apart from and transcending perceived experience as in the basic truths of life. Agreement with a standard or an original. Further down the dictionary, we get truth claim, a hypothesis not yet verified by experience. Agreement with a standard or original leads you to ask the next question, and the state of the world gives us the answer today. Can the standard change? And therefore, by this definition, can truth itself, in fact, change? This is under so much attack today because truth is at the heart and nature of God. The application of a modern definition of truth is what allows the religion of evolutionary theory to openly admit to falsifying documents, yet still produce them in biology books today to be taught to our children under the disguise of science. A departure from truth forces the Mormon religion to adopt a concept of continuing revelation, allowing the standard to change when it is no longer popular, such as the inclusion of African Americans to the church when on December 6, 2013, Mormons officially announced it was no longer acceptable to condemn a man to hell based on his color. And the Book of Mormon no longer included that white skin was a sign of God's blessing and dark skin was a sign of God's curse. Changing this standard can be as blatant as the massacre of hundreds of innocent people by the prophet Muhammad or as subtle as an existence that looks good on the outside but is devoid of any transcendent value because there is not the power of Jesus Christ. As man redefines truth and changes the standard, it now allows a man-centered government the authority to change a God-defined institution or to terminate life altogether with the facade of science. But in reality, what is at the heart of it all is convenience known as selfishness and the anti-truth which is sin. Man, already proven faulty at best, now asserts himself as the final authority. And the list goes on and on and on. So Christian, what do we know of truth? Well, first we know that God is the same today, yesterday, and forever. In other words, this standard does not change. God's word has already been proven on every level imaginable, the scientific, the mathematical, philosophically, etc. The evidence through our own application of the scientific method or the accepted use of eyewitness accounts and cross-referenced documents is so overwhelming that items that require faith are then easy to accept because God is mighty and ultimately worthy of our praise. Truth is innate in God. You cannot separate it from God. John 1.17 says this, For the law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. As Christians, we are to be girded, or in other words, held together with the truth. As in Ephesians 6.14, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. So let us look at historically recorded interaction with truth. I'd like for you all to turn with me to John 18, verse 28 through 40. Begin in verse 28. John 18, 28 through 40. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. 
So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. And then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. And Barabbas was a robber. Jesus came to this world to bear witness to the truth. No wonder it is under constant attack from every side. You see, Pilate may have asked an honest question of truth, or perhaps given a sarcastic response to truth because of the prevailing view of the time, specifically that of Socrates and Plato, that truth was unattainable by man. When staring the very face, when staring at the very face of truth, Pilate knew this man's assertion as king was right and that he was innocent of any wrongdoing. So much so that he thought, for sure I can offer the Jews something they will not refuse in order to free Jesus. When the crowd responded that they wanted Barabbas, a known robber and a known murderer, it was then solidified. This was no longer an issue of truth and justice, which is righteous before God. He knew right then and there that the Jews were not interested in the truth. This was a battle for the ultimate question that Satan introduced in the garden. That question is this, is God supreme or is man supreme? That is what is being done today. At the root of the matter is no desire for right against wrong, because that would require someone to reconcile their life with the words or truth of Jesus. Back to the religion of evolution. It is accepted today by its own leaders as unsupportable through science, and therefore the battle has been and will always be spiritual. They will not accept that there is a God, and they will not accept that there could possibly be creation. In Deuteronomy, truth is an attribute of God. John fourteen six, Jesus says these words, and I know we are familiar. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. In John eight thirty one through 32, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Free from the bondage of sin and death. Free from a distorted notion of truth that can change direction like the winds of the air. In accordance with Jesus' own words, we cannot believe of him. We must believe in him. From that, we realize that God's truth is total and it applies to our entire life. There is not a distinction between what is considered the sacred and the secular. God's truth is total and he reigns supreme over all. He loves righteousness and justice. And the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Isaiah 6, 3. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory.
So we continue in verse 6 and 7. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps into storehouses. Oh, the majesty of God. May I offer you another written account of this heart in reverence to God through all of his creation. Oh, beautiful for spacious skies, for amber waves of grain, for purple mountain majesties above the fruited plain. America, America, God shed his grace on thee and crowned thy good with brotherhood from sea to shining sea. The simple, all-encompassing love of God demonstrated in the complexity and beauty of his creation. The case for Christ and therefore God the Father stands as it concerns his breath of life that brought about creation. The pursuit of truth is outlined in Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The true pursuit of the sciences is the revealing of God and his glorious attributes through the revelation of his word and creation. The fact that he lets man participate in this is another testament to his mercy, to his love, his patience, and his grace. Proverbs 25.2 It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search it out. I have a personal friend who struggled with the truth of God due to the way he was raised and the examples that he interacted with and saw. It was not until adulthood as a neurosurgeon where the study of the brain and the human body did he come face-to-face with, face face with a designer who was intelligent beyond all comprehension. The more he studied the human brain, the more that, he was, that was revealed and all the more glory was brought to God. This resulted in this man's complete surrender to God and his son, Jesus Christ. For now the existence of God was no longer in question, and the truth of God was found in salvation through Jesus. He also realized that God cannot be judged by the actions of sinful man. Even those that claim to follow him, God's merit stands alone. So do we have historical precedents of God-fearing men in the pursuit of science and truth where the results give credence to him and his method of creation? Namely, the fact that all was spoken into existence. Copernicus is the Polish astronomer who put forward the first mathematically-based system of planets going around the sun. He attended various European universities and became a canon in the church in 1497. Bacon was a philosopher who is known for establishing the scientific method of inquiry based on experimentation and inductive reasoning, the exact same method used today. In his great work on natural interpretation, Bacon established his goals as being the discovery of truth, service to his country, and service to the church. Although his work was based upon experimentation and reasoning, he rejected atheism as being the result of insufficient depth of philosophy, stating this, It is true that a little philosophy inclineth man's mind to atheism, but depth in philosophy bringeth men's minds about to religion. For while the mind of man looketh upon second causes scattered, it may sometimes rest in them and go no further. But when it beholds the chain of them confederate and linked together, it must needs fly to providence and to deity. Kepler was a brilliant mathematician and astronomer. He did early work on light and established the laws of planetary motion about the sun. He also came close to reaching the Newtonian concept of universal gravity well before Newton was even born. And it is often forgotten that the next step for Descartes was to establish the near certainty of the existence of God, 
For only if God both exists and would not want us to be deceived by our own experiences can we trust our senses and logical thought processes. God is therefore central to his whole philosophy. Pascal was a French mathematician, physicist, inventor, writer, and theologian. In mathematics, he published a treatise on the subject of projective geometry and established the foundation of probability theory. Pascal invented a mechanical calculator and established the principles of vacuums and pressure of air. In optics, mechanics, and mathematics, Newton was a figure of undisputed genius and innovation. In all his science, including chemistry, he saw mathematics and numbers as central. What is uh, less well-known is that he was devoutly religious, and he saw numbers as bolstering the understanding of God's plan for history in the Bible. In his system of physics, God was essential to the nature and absoluteness of space. In Principia, he stated, The most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. One of the founders of the key early members of the Royal Society, Boyle, gave his name to Boyle's Law for Gases and also wrote an important work on chemistry. Michael Faraday was the son of a blacksmith who became one of the greatest scientists of the 19th century. His work on electricity and magnetism not only revolutionized physics, but led to much of our lifestyles today, which depends on them. Mendel was the first to lay the mathematical foundation of genetics in what came to be called Mendelianism. He began his research in 1856, which is three years before Darwin published his Origin of Species, and he did it in the garden of the monastery in which he was a monk. Kelvin was foremost among the small group of British scientists who helped to lay the foundations of modern physics. Interestingly, his fellow physicists George Gabriel Stokes and James Clark Maxwell were also men of deep Christian commitment in an era when many were nominal, apathetic, or anti-Christian altogether. The Encyclopedia Britannica says Maxwell is regarded by most modern physicists as the scientist of the 19th century who had the greatest influence on 20th century physics. He's ranked with Sir Isaac Newton and Albert Einstein for the fundamental natures of his contributions. Planck made many contributions to physics, but is best known for quantum theory, which revolutionized our understanding of the atomic and subatomic worlds. And the list will go on and on and on. The reason why that is so imperative is because we are going to compare that in just a moment to what modern uh, man will call science. This is the properly framed application of truth and the pursuit of a relationship with God through science. Science in this manner could achieve such monumental works because it was framed appropriately. God designed it and allowed it to be revealed. Not science exists, and therefore God must not. In contrast to God-centered science and exploration for the pursuit of the knowledge of God, we have man in an effort to usurp God. William B. Provine is the Andrew H. and James S. Tisch Distinguished University Professor at Cornell University and is a professor in the departments of history, science, technological studies, ecology, and evolutionary biology. And this is what he has to say on the subject. Let me summarize my views on what modern evolutionary biology tells us loud and clear. This is a science classroom. There are no gods. No purposes, no goal-directed forces of any kind. There is no life after death. When I die, I am absolutely certain that I am going to be dead. That's the end of it for me. There is no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning to life, and no free will for humans either. 
Richard Dawkins in The God Delusion, and for those of us unfamiliar with him, is the leading, these are the top two leading evolutionists today. Richard Dawkins in The God Delusion says this, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. He is jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadiomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. And furthermore states, I am against religion because it teaches us to be satisfied with not understanding the world. Not understanding the world. That is completely contrary to what we just read from all of man, time immemorial's leading scientists. This does not sound like science to me. The enemy here is clothed in the light of science and reason, but in reality is in direct contrast to the historical precedence of science and rational thought as we know it. Why is this such a problem? Because their false science is not removed from their religion. Modern education thinks of these as parallel pursuits rather than natural association between the disciplines. The particulars are divorced from the universals, and in reality, you cannot define and observe the particulars without the foundation of the universals. And God, through his word, has spoken on both. Nothing is autonomous from God's word. Francis Schaeffer said this in his work, Escape from Reason. The basic position of man in rebellion against God is that man is at the center of the universe, that he is autonomous, and here lies his rebellion. Man will keep his rationalism and his rebellion, his insistence on total autonomy or partially autonomous areas, even if it means he must give up his rationality. Why is this thought process so destructive? This is just a hypothesis. It's no big deal. They just teach it as a counter to possibly creationism in school. This is a very destructive way of thinking. Man is now forced to explain what is the particulars of day-to-day life and the universals that exist beyond himself. And this is the result of that line of thought. Now, rather than the universals defining the particulars, as an example, God spoke creation into existence, and therefore we have creation. We have man attempting to define the universals in the light of the particulars. And as an example, there is creation, and therefore there can be no God. However, they do not accept authority beyond themselves, and therefore with no meaning to life, the ending of life is the only answer. Or, in order to account for universals, which they cannot deny, drugs must be taken to quote-unquote understand any and all earthly forms of pleasure, such as pornography, are the only release from this quote-unquote insane world. That is the result of evolution religion. All temporary satisfaction that in truth can only be filled by God. This is a coordinated agenda and attack on God himself. This is the bondage of the mind and action, sin that God himself came to free us from. This is the world's explanation to the scriptural truth that we are made in the image and likeness of God, the greatest of God's creation. We are not devoid of any significance. The truth of the matter is the fact that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but we were made to commune with him in a living relationship. 
That void is only filled by truth in the truth of Jesus Christ and the fact that he died to restore our relationship with the Father. That void cannot be filled by things as intrusive as drugs, science departed from reason, pornography, lust for power, or as subtle as our own good works. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. This brings us to agree with the psalmist in verse 8 and 9. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. We are face to face with our creator who spoke all into existence and his truth is marching on. We continue in verse 10. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. John Piper says, It is all important to realize that God plans the world, God plans churches, God plans lives, and his plans succeed. No matter how great our resources, victory belongs to the Lord. On the day of battle, God alone decides who wins. In Shakespeare's Henry V, a volley of hundreds of arrows were launched with no particular target in mind. Who directed them to the intended target? Answer God. A single breath of wind could completely reverse the outcome, and who is it that controls the wind? That is why King Henry's victorious little army sang non novus domine gloria as they walked through a bloody battlefield. A quote from Psalm 115.1, Not to us, O Lord, be the glory. But what say us, church, concerning blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord? This is a reference to Israel, the one particular people whom he has chosen as his heritage. It is clear from the call of Abram that Israel was called to be God's means by which the whole world would come to know him. In Genesis 12, verse 1 through 3, we read this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I believe it beyond the scope of our discussion today to delve into the founding of this nation and the personalities that comprised it. It is worth, however, continuing to mention that just as we read, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man, and behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Blessings on this nation, or any other for that matter, are a demonstration of the Lord's love through patience and long-suffering. There are several people who fear the Lord, and there are several people who do not. If, as we discussed previously, God is concerned about the particulars and Christianity as total truth, then that extends into government and certainly the rule of this republic and this great nation. The simple fact is that where we have won, God has made it so. And when we have lost, God has allowed it. In all cases, 
The glory is God's. We have as a nation in the course of history taken several stands that are consistent with God's word. And we have asked his blessing on our actions as well as his blessings on the outcome. We have also been overcome by sin and made choices that are completely counter to God and the truth of his word. And this is where I'd like to focus our discussion now. John Piper says, all truth without God is not the truth God meant it to be. In other words, a truth stripped of God is not a total truth. And it will not, cannot guide well. This is what I would offer is oftentimes the state of our union. We repeatedly use terms such as right and wrong, not everyone, law, justice, righteousness, government, morality, liberty, freedom, with no foundation in truth as defined by the God who created it. Rather than the inclusion of church and state or the separation of church and state for the safety of the church, we have kept what sounds good and just, but there is no depth or meaning in it. In fact, it is the same problem we had earlier with science. If we do not accept God's government or principles of natural law, but redefine the terms, then we and it is destined to fail. The governing officials now have a burden that they cannot hope to fulfill. The problem is the question, what is good? What is just? What is law? What is moral? What is liberty? And because the standard changes with popular decision, it cannot be truth, and therefore it is doomed. What is good today will not necessarily be that way tomorrow. We have enabled a complete society to exist on the welfare of others and therefore allowed them to live without the God-created benefits of work and the pursuit to serve other people. We have allowed the government to decide whether or not God is allowed in the public eye and in any public forum all the while swearing oaths with our hand placed on God's very word. Government, with the aid of quote-unquote science, has had to redefine over and over again when life actually begins in order to allow a people to freely murder an unborn living being. Is this state or is this church? The definition of marriage in the eyes of government is now open to same-sex partnership. So much so that the open refusal to accept and support this is now being sanctioned by quote-unquote law. How long until the definition joins man and beast? For how can you dare tell me what is quote-unquote right? Is this state or is this church? And when I say church, I ask you to hear religion. Is government now religion in the same manner evolution was forced to be? Because it has no foundation in truth. What we have is the fact that you cannot pray to or speak the name of Jesus in school, but make no mistake, religion is most certainly being taught there. What then is our response? Well, God has died to make men holy. Let us live to make men free. 1 Thessalonians 5, 15 through 18 says this, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We are to stand up and speak for what is right, but our power is in Jesus Christ, and our weapons in this battle, which may I remind you, is already won, is the sword of the Spirit in God's mighty word, truth and prayer. For if we do not have love, God's love, all of our actions are clanging symbols. This warfare is spiritual. 
Our adversaries in this pursuit are not interested in truth, no matter how they define it. It is not a genuine intellectual debate as a whole, but rather a direct and desperate attack at God, the God who has already won this battle. Now, there are certainly those that knew this when establishing our nation. John Adams said this, The general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. I will avow that I then believed and now believe that those general principles of Christianity Christianity are as eternal and immutable as the existence and attributes of God. Josiah Bartlett, military officer, signer of the Declaration of Independence, governor of New Hampshire, and judge, said this when he implored the people of New Hampshire to confess of their sins. Talk about leadership. To confess before God their aggravated transgressions and to implore his pardon and forgiveness through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ. That the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ may be made known to all nations. Pure and undefiled religion universally prevail. And the earth be filled with the glory of the Lord. Gunning Bedford, military officer, member of the Continental Congress, signer of the Constitution and federal judge said this to open his business. To the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, be ascribed all honor and dominion forever. Amen. Elias Bodenot, a president of Congress, signed the peace treaty to end the American Revolution. The first attorney admitted to the U.S. Supreme Court bar, framer of the Bill of Rights and founder of the U.S. Mint, opens his dealings with business with this. Let us enter on this important business under the idea that we are Christians on whom the eyes of the whole world are now turned. Let us earnestly call and beseech him for Christ's sake to preside in our councils. We can only depend on the all-powerful influence of the Spirit of God whose divine aid and assistance it becomes us as a Christian people most devoutly to implore. Therefore, I move that some minister of the gospel be requested to attend this Congress every morning in order to open this meeting with prayer. That is how we started. Alexander Hamilton, following his duel with Colonel Burr, requested the presence of two men. Reverend J.M. Mason and Reverend Benjamin Moore. And this is the report that transpired from the two. Immediately after he was brought from the field, a message was sent informing me of the sad event, accompanied by a request from General Hamilton that I would come to him for the purpose of administering Holy Communion. I went. I proceeded to converse with him on the subject of his receiving the communion and told him that with respect to the qualifications of those who wish to become partakers of that holy ordinance, my inquiries could not be made in language more expressive than that which was used by our own church. And so I asked him, Do you sincerely repent of your sins past? Have you a lively faith in God's mercy through Christ? With a thankful remembrance of the death of Christ? And are you disposed to live in love and charity with all men? He lifted up his hands and said, with the utmost sincerity of heart, I can answer those questions in the affirmative. I have no ill will against Colonel Burr. I met him with a fixed resolution to do him no harm. I forgive all that happened. The communion was then administered, which he received with great devotion, and his heart afterwards appeared to be perfectly at rest. I saw him again this morning, 
when his last faltering words, he expressed a strong confidence in the mercy of God through the intercession of the Redeemer. I remained with him until two o'clock this afternoon. When death closed the awful scene, he expired without a struggle and almost without a groan. By reflecting on this melancholy event, let the humble believer be encouraged ever to hold fast that precious faith, which is the only source of true consolation in the last extremity of nature. And let the infidel be persuaded to abandon his opposition to that gospel, which the strong, inquisitive, and comprehensive mind of Hamilton embraced. That, ladies and gentlemen, is church and state. We end this psalm with God's faithfulness and reassurance in his sovereign, omniscient, omnipresent power. Verse 18, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our hope and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. God is sovereign over all, and the praise we discussed at the beginning will continue in heaven throughout all eternity. In Revelation 19, it says this, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belongs to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. I am not here with you on my own authority, but rather the only authority, Jesus Christ. But I can bear testimony to this. I have seen him in watchfires of a hundred circling camps, and they have builded him altars in evening dews and damps. I have read his righteous sentence by dim and flaring lamps. His truth, his day is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Make no mistake, our God is marching on. Please join me in prayer before Brennan leads us in communion. Lord, you are truth. Extends to every facet of our life. We declare you alone as king and ask that you use us in your service and for your glory. Amen.